reading this morning is from Ephesians chapter 3, and that is on page 1109 of the Church Bible, and we are reading from verses 14 to 21. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. What's the most important thing in the Christian life? It's rather rather a a good question. It's a question which uh, I had when I was uh, 17. I was doing the washing up uh, alongside the uh, chaplain of the school which I attended. We were doing the washing up together and... uh, He said in the context of this conversation, he said, the most important thing in the Christian life is to know that you are loved by God. And I don't think I'd ever quite put it or thought of it in those terms before but I have actually thought about it in those terms kind of almost ever since. I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And listen to this. And to know this love (laughs) that surpasses knowledge. I I love that. It's the kind of language which really annoys lawyers and really pleases poets. (laughs) That you may know this love that surpasses knowledge knowledge. And actually, we do need to take hold of, I think, both both parts of that. That God's love, you can know it. It's, It's not inevitable that just because God created us, that necessarily we would know that he loves us. Although he would love us, but he does. And we can know this love. We can know it. 
But knowing this love, do not mistake that for thinking, oh, yeah, I, I fully know it. I, I, I've got this all wrapped up. <laughs> the truth is that we can know the love of God. But its fullness is beyond our knowledge. And therefore, there is always more. We're always being called into more. More which is not different, in no way denies that which has been already. But just something which is deeper, richer. What language does Paul use? Wider, maybe longer, higher, deeper than we thought. It's as though we can touch the hem of the garment as he passes by and feel the power and know the transformation but still know that there is more. There is always more. I suspect, and um, here I'm being a bit speculative. I, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I, I am more true, sure, of some sort of truths of the Christian faith than I am of what I'm just going to say. But I, I'm going to say, I, I, I think, I think, I rather suspect that even in heaven, even when we encounter our saviour face to face and all sin has been taken away and we gaze at the glory, I suspect that even then we are still finite beings in the presence of an infinite God. And I think one of the things which will fuel, as it were, the worship of heaven is we will keep on being bowled over by the love of God. We'll keep on being surprised by the love of God. Not that we don't know it. We'll know it then better than we know it now. But actually, his love is huge. And we will swim in that ocean. Hmm. So, in the light of this, that knowing the love of God is so central, and I, and I believe it is, so central to the Christian life and the Christian experience, to know that we're loved by God. How then do we pray for people? Because after all, this passage is Paul's prayer, or one of Paul's prayers. How do we pray? You see, Paul didn't have the latest prayer letter from Ephesus. He didn't have the Ephesian elders on his Twitter feed so that he could know exactly what was happening. Any news which Paul had of these people whom he dearly loved and knew well was second-hand and quite old. How do you pray for people when you don't know the latest news? 
when you don't know quite what's going on for them, the way Paul prays is just great. It's just great, and it's open to us. And, and I do just commend to you the practice of, you will find in the New Testament many prayers. You'll find them in the Old Testament too. But many prayers of Paul are prayers praying for another Christian community, praying into the lives of other Christians. And he prays for them to know the love of God and to experience the transformation of God at work in their lives. We'll just unpack a little bit of that in the moments ahead. Note this, in this prayer, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Who's he praying this for? He's praying this for a Christian community. He's not praying for people who are outside of the Christian community. I'm not saying he never did, but, the, but this isn't what he's doing here. He's praying for Christians. And he prays that they may know, sorry, that they may be strengthened with power so that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith. I think this is part of the there's always more. Did they know something of Christ in their hearts already? Yes, they did. Was it meaningful to pray for more? Yes, it was. That, that they could expand, as it were, and, and, and Christ could dwell more richly or maybe more effectively in their hearts. Maybe that they would be more open as well to the working of God within them. He's praying this for Christians. See, there's always more. You know, we you know, never imagine that we have exhausted the glorious riches of God. The idea that, you know, God's glorious riches, oh yeah, I know all of them. I know all about that. Well, suddenly our Christian life comes to a full stop where it should not come to a full stop. I wasn't, I actually wasn't going to talk about this, but I just was having a conversation just a few days ago about somebody who was, who's been in the church where I am and is coming to, uh, to baptism. He's been part of the church there for 25 years or so. And at the end of that time, he, he suddenly said, I'm coming for baptism because I see it as, I keep on seeing it as a, as a destination. I'm realising it's a beginning. Probably doesn't say great about my preaching in the meantime, but he's got it now. But, but it, it's, a, it's, 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 it's the beginning of a journey, or at least a point on a journey. You know, it's the idea that, that I'm a Christian, full stop, deadens the church deadens the church because there's always more there's always more 
Note this also. I'm taking you to one of my favourite passages of Scripture. But I say that about a number of them. Not all of them, but, but this, is, this is one of my favourite passages. But it's deeply Trinitarian. You find here, Father, Son and Spirit. Well, the language used is Father, Christ and Spirit. But, but here we have this language. And we've got the Father showing his love. The Spirit working in us, kind of making room for Christ to dwell. And we find the kind of intertwining, inseparable work of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the language used is that we are rooted and established in love. And we have to be rooted in something outside of ourselves. No plant is rooted in itself. It's rooted in something outside of itself. So when it says rooted and established or grounded in love, it's talking about that love of God. That we are in the love of God and the love of God is in us. They're both in this passage. And as we approach Father, Son and Holy Spirit, it's as though we we're entering into aspects of the love which flows within God himself. There are moments which have not been very frequent, but there have been moments in my life where the best description has been that I am in love. Not in love as in falling in love, romance, but that suddenly I've stepped into a place where kind of love is within me and around me. And this, this, is, this is the experience of entering into the life of, of, of God himself who loves, who is love. And note this as well, which is kind of implicit in everything I've been saying, is that this is an inside-out prayer. It's an inside-out prayer. It's a prayer for the inner working of God so that there will be an outer effect. I pray that out of his glorious riches, the Father may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that... Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Goodness me, whatever that means. I, do you realise, Paul who had the brain the size of the planet. You know, he was just the kind of 
cleverest theologian there's ever been kind of thing. He's lost for words. He's lost for words. He's got the end, and therefore all he's left with is pointing to, pointing out to the truth of God's love because he knows he cannot fully grasp it. He can grasp it, but not fully. The image here of being rooted and grounded is is the image of a plant. And if a plant, I mean, I, when I went to, uh, as a lodger in a place, as a, as a young man, I, I lodged in a house in East London, and, and they gave me a little spider plant, a little house plant, uh, on the desk in the room. So I, I had a sum total of one plant to look after. And uh, it, it, after a, a while, it, it didn't look well. I'm not a gardener. <laughs> One plant. It, it was looking sickly. But you watered it. Or I watered it. And suddenly the following day, it didn't look half so sickly as it had the day before. The response was not to get out the paintbrush and say, that's a little bit of a pale colour, Let, let's give it a lick of paint. I mean, it's ridiculous, isn't it? It's... Let's transform what's happening on the inside so that the outside changes. That's the nature of the Christian life. And I say this, that I think any other basis for Christian living ends up being thin, vulnerable, fragile. Duty will take us so far. Intellectual grasp will take us so far. But knowing that we are loved by God is transformative. It energizes who we are and what we do. When we know we are loved by God then this gives us a a firm basis for living, a a joy-filled, substantial, robust basis on which to live the Christian life. And also note this, none of this is solo. The Christian walk is not a solo hike. It's a group activity. that you may grasp, together with all the saints, (laughs) how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Not only is it not just one individual Christian, but actually something which involves us all. Actually, he's writing to a group of Christians here, and he's saying, actually, Ephesian Christians, you can't do this on your own either. This is part of God's work in his wide whole church. When we pray, this isn't in my notes, but when we pray, we pray our Father. 
Forgive our sins. Give us our daily bread. This is, this is something we live our Christian lives corporately, in community. And, and, and the bounds of that community are not the bounds of any one congregation either. Let me, let me conclude with a, a story. Not my own. The story begins before I was born. Three young lads, aged about 13, in France, who didn't have much time uh, for Christianity or the church. And they, they decided to do a dare, a prank. And they egged on one of their number to go into the church, the Catholic church there, to go into the confessional, which they have there, and to tell the priest who was sitting there a whole list of sins. I don't know whether they were real ones or made-up ones, but it was just, let's have a laugh. And this lad was dead and egged on, and he went in and he did as his friends had told him, and the priest was wise to what happened. And the priest said to him, go up to the altar rail, look up at the crucifix, which was there. And he said, say this. He said, Lord Jesus Christ, you loved me so much that you died for me. And I don't care. Even in a story, those are awful things to pass my lips, actually. And the boy comes out and he goes to his friends and says, I've done as you told me to. And they said, the dare's not complete unless you do what that fool of a priest told you to do. So he goes up to the altar rail and he says, Lord Jesus Christ, you loved me so much that you died for me. He, he, he couldn't finish. <laughs> he couldn't finish that sentence. Because he was confronted by the love of God. We know the story because he was later the Archbishop of Paris. And this is his story of how he came to faith. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love 
that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.